You're listening to More Than This, the podcast where Christian faith and reason explore reasons for Christian faith. Life's not a sequence program from the sky. Life's a story woven up, down, in and out, like If you enjoy our show, please consider supporting us for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Check out our site at www.patreon.com forward slash more than this pod. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of More Than This. This is Brooke, and I'm here with David. Hi, David. Hello, Brooke. Good to be back together. It's so good to be back together. And I'm, yeah, I have clearly had other priorities these last few weeks. (laughs) And haven't been on an an episode with you in quite a while. But you've been having some good fun with other guests. Uh, Yeah, just just a few. So they'll be coming out over time. Everybody got to hear from uh, Daniel Silliman the other week, which was great fun for me uh, on his lovely book. So if you haven't heard that episode, go back and check that one out. Great. Well, today we are going to talk together about a topic that is a bit timely. We have a holiday coming up next week, Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving has gotten me thinking a little bit about family gatherings in general and how I tend to show up in those family gatherings. And so I thought this would be an interesting and, like I said, timely topic, maybe for others as well, who are considering going to family gatherings and maybe there are other people like me who just tend to fall in the same little crevices in the ground constantly, getting in the same political arguments, the same all sorts of arguments. Uh, And I'm wondering about, is there a way not to do that? Yeah, I'm thinking we should call this episode, How to Be Thankful You Went to Thanksgiving. Because uh, a lot of times, you know, I, I hear the accounts of people spending holidays with their families and they kind of have to ramp up to do it, kind of have to steal themselves, you know, rehearse like, you know, if they have a partner or somebody they're going with, like they have ground rules. We're not going to talk about these things. If, you know, if, you know, if Auntie Mary says this thing that's inflammatory to us, we're going to do this or we're going to walk out of the room or kind of have to game plan. And I think we're trying to, you know, trying to figure out, like you said, like a different way. Mm-hmm. How can we experience holidays with our, our, our biological families here? Um, Friendsgiving's a cheat. I'm, I'm really, because, you know, we're, we're, we're deselecting any controversy, basically. We're just selecting on the people we love and often think pretty similarly to us. So uh, that's, that's a little bit easier of a task, I think, which, I, I mean, God bless. We, we do Friendsgiving too, but uh, I feel like people have sort of gone away, you know, from, the notion of sometimes like, you know, family, biological family is a little icky, you know, so, and I know it can be tough, but we're trying to say, let's get back to a place where we can be with our, the family we didn't choose, right, that we were born into. And how do we do that? Well, and that's really well put, because I think what we're talking about regarding Thanksgiving is a kind of micro uh, example of the problem in our society in general, that we pretty much just are only with people who think like us. Yeah. And I, at a deep, deep level, think that is not the way the world is supposed to be. 
Yes. I'm actually supposed to be challenged. My views should become more robust. I should be thinking different or hearing different opinions, different arguments. Like, actually, that helps me in my smartness. <laughs> yeah, does that make sense? It does. And there's, there's something underlying that that I love. And I've, I'm actually, I should say I'm chagrined by it because I've, I've taken the wrong path many times in conversations with people who hold opposing views to me or can push my buttons on certain topics. And I've come away from the conversation where I've sort of just regurgitated and re-rehearsed my lines that I know to say. Oh, and, so true. And then it's like you come away and those conversations are always unsatisfying because then uh, at, at, at best you feel like there was a winner and a loser, but then that doesn't feel good either. Uh, and you just kind of get rankled and riled and don't learn anything. So I come away and I'm like, I don't know anything more about my position than what I was just ready, had preloaded to say. And then that it's just kind of like this weird simulation of a conversation where you just kind of say the things you each know to say with more, more anger and then walk away. It's not very fun. Absolutely. That's a really good example of one bad way to do it. And I also think another way that sometimes I fall into is that I, don't, um, how do I say, I just don't talk about real things. Yes. And you mentioned that at the beginning as well. And then I just think, okay, I'm going to just keep to surface. Yes. I'm going to be a true American. I'm not going to talk about sex, politics, or religion, or any big issues. And I'm just going to do small talk. The problem with that is that you don't really get to know anyone better. Right. right? You just, the, le- the relationship just stays the same. And I'm bored. Yes. Let's see, what are the results? It's just really dissatisfying. It's really dissatisfying. And it feels fake. It feels really fake. And, and there's no intimacy exchange. There's no, there's no growth in intimacy. Brooke, we're, we're talking about these things as if they're awfully familiar to us. Do you have any uh, examples that you could cite from, I will say Thanksgivings as a general, uh, metaphor for spending time with family. It doesn't need to be a Thanksgiving memory per se, but do you do you have anything that you can think of that you would feel safe to share that would sort of uh sort of ex- ex- you know highlight the what we're talking about? Yeah, I think well, one example, this is maybe an example it, it's a compilation of sort of different experiences in one, I think. Um but I think about uh, conversations where I have um, fallen into what felt like traps regarding, for example, religion or my perspective on a particular issue or where I was asked to sort of speak on behalf of all Christians. Yes. (laughs) And maybe others have had that too. And I hate those moments because it makes me feel very emotional. And then when I get emotional, then I start to, you know, oh, what's the word? Uh, kind of play meanly as well, because I felt like someone just played meanly with me. You try to get some jabs in. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I forget that this is my cousin, whom I love. <laughs> yes. And all I want to do is win the argument. Mm-hmm. That. You just highlighted something that's really hard. And I, I've heard uh, some African-American friends refer to this as well, where 
they feel like they're asked to uh, answer for all people of color on a certain topic. And that, that is something that has happened within my family too, where, um, you know, it turns out that I always say that the, you can, can tell uh, people who you hold a position is usually uh, you hold it around who you extend the most nuance to. So if you're on one side of the political divide, on that side, you have a lot of nuance for certain stories and things, but then for the other side, there's no nuance. It's very black and white, and then vice versa. If you're on the other side, there's a lot of nuance, and then, you know, so it's interesting uh, when somebody approaches you with very little nuance about uh, a group that you're a part of, like, say, Christians, right? So if you read a Barna survey about evangelicals, right, and you mm-hmm. looked at, like, dispositions of evangelicals, you may see yourself in a few of them, but not all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's some sort of weird composite person that exists once in a great while, but most people are more nuanced than that. But somebody who maybe was anti-Christian would come and say, well, you are all of these things from this Barna survey. And like, that's not fair. So then I start throwing barbs because I've had yeah. that happen to me. Are you voted left? This means that you are a thoroughgoing progressive, like the most extreme version. Answer for that. That has happened. That happens in my family uh, sometimes at extended conversations. And Karen and I are like, well, that's not who we are. You know, so you're kind of starting with presuppositions that aren't there. And that tends to be a place where I dig in and swing back, you know, as opposed to listen. Because then it's like, there's too much going on in this conversation. It's so true. And I think as I listen to you right now, I'm also thinking it's maybe helpful to think about an even greater extreme. So for example, I think about the 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 practice and study of interfaith dialogue. Uh-huh. And in interreligious dialogue, two of the great tenets of it is one, you focus on what is common, and two, if you speak of differences, you do it in a warm, curious way. That is not asking the Buddhist, dot, dot, Muslim, whoever the person is across from you, to speak on behalf of all Muslims, right. to speak on behalf of all Buddhists, but ask questions that get more at the heart of what is the practice of prayer for you as a Muslim, that that gets to much more fruitful interreligious dialogue. And I think sometimes it's helpful to think about huge swaths of study like that. And bring those close and think about my family gathering. <laughs> yes. And think, what if I try practicing that? Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to start to move in the latter part of our conversations to that. But, but any more things that you want to talk about, David, in the sense of, you know, little bumps that you tend to trip over? You know, some of them, uh, I'm a very logic-based person. You may know this about me. So. When there is a, a, a bunch of dots that don't connect, which I think regardless of the viewpoint that you hold or the sort of causes that you espouse, where I'm like, that can make my head explode. And some of you listening, I know the demographics of this show. I think there's probably some people out there who think like me or relate to that way of engaging the world. And I often come back to, and this is sort of foreshadowing the last part too, but I come back to, how do you even know that? You're making these claims, these assertions. Like, how do you even know that? And I get mad on that level. Like, you can't even know that. Or what is, you know, people will, be, will say things and I'm like, 
who would benefit from that? Why the causal story, we'll say, like the, the sort of chain of causal things that would have to happen that's implied by the what somebody holds may be so ridiculous to me that I get mad on that level. So that may be idiosyncratic to me, but I know that there are some people out there where it's just flawed thinking. It's not even that where they arrived, it's how they got there. It's like, oh, like that makes no sense to me. Like, so I get tripped out of the gate a lot of times at the level of logic and backstory. So if anybody can relate to that, maybe that's just me, you know, getting a little catharsis here on the podcast. But whew, that gets my goat where I'm like, that is such poor thinking. Does not, it's not critical thinking, it's not logical self-defeating, it's circular, whatever it is, you know, tautological, whatever it might be. There's all kinds of logical fallacies out there that I'm not pulling to mind at the moment. But yes, that can drive me crazy too. And it gets us so frustrated at the person. It does. And then it, we lose the focus of, wait, this is a person I love. If, if we're still talking, yeah, in the example of family. Well, and then there's the issue of vocation for you and me also, Brooke. Mm. I'm a therapist. Your pastor and spiritual director, like, how can we truly turn our taxi signs off and say, no, that's not happening right now? Like, I would never approach a person by my training and my vocation in this way. Like, why, do, why would, like, that's the other thing yeah. where I'm like, why would I sort of actively betray the vocational principles and way of being? I understand how I am in the world for my job and how I feel called to be for this engagement with someone who's in my family. I have, to, I, I have to think about that all the time. Yep. Not everybody has the same vocations that we do, but we are, we are kind of trained. We're, we're meant to be good at, good at this, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're meant to be. And I suck at it, like, much of the time. So, it's so true. It's so true. So that's in my head, too. So let's turn our attention a little bit to what have we, what have you, David, found helpful I'll use language of process. <laughs> what have you found to be uh, helpful as you practice this? Because I clearly don't think you're probably good at it yet, and I definitely know I'm not. How have you been able to practice sh- showing up in a different way? Some there, There's the, the idea of not taking yourself too seriously. Um, it doesn't mean that the things you believe in do, don't have gravity or don't matter. But I've, I try as best as I can to not take myself too seriously in a conversation, like um, sometimes self-deprecation, things like that. Uh, there can, you can overdo it beating other people to the punch where you sort of insult your own side of an argument. Uh, but I think that's probably good too. But I think uh, some of this will come down. I think empathy is is big. Where I'm, I'm just trying to to switch gears. Where I'm like, you know, here's the biggest thing. I know I've been talking in circles, but the biggest thing is I'm like, do I believe this is true or not? Do I believe this is the best way to live or not? Am I convinced hmm. of my belief or not? Because if I am, uh it's a lot less assailable. You know what I mean? It's not thin. It can withstand attack. Mm. And if I believe hmm. it, I should have some comfort in believing that it can stand up to whatever might come, it's become my way. So are you saying that 
you don't, in every given conversation, have to always defend your position. I think that's a, a, a smart, concise way of saying it. Like, hmm. when it comes to issues of faith, you know, I, I realized I had a, a roommate, and this will, some of my, our listeners may not like this distinction, but he was a, a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, and who, who considered himself as part of the Christian tradition. Um, but some Orthodox Christians would not consider them under the tent. So I understand that's divisive. But he and I would talk about theology and religion and, and you know, scripture and sources. And I just was like, we're not going to convince one another. He had, like, you know, been a missionary, you know, a Mormon missionary, and, like, you know, was very steeped in his religion, it meant a whole lot to him. I had gone to Bible college, seminary, and, like, it was like, we're not going to change one another's minds. This was in grad school. And I just realized, and he's a lovely guy. And we just kind of realized, I was like, this is, I just, I just believe this. Like at some level, I just believe this. And it doesn't mean that I don't want to examine it and don't maybe want to examine it with you, but I'm not starting from the place that this can't stand. There's not enough truth here for it to stand independent of my defensive. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I love I love the way you said it. Yeah, I, I don't have to defend everything every time, uh, and it's not a referendum of me. Like my identity can't be tied up in these things so much that it's because when the fervor of argumentation goes up and you're, you're attacking, it's usually not a viewpoint you're defending. You're defending yourself in some way. Yeah. If your emotions getting that much into it, I, I find it for me at least. I'm like, am I defending myself or defending a position? Hmm. And when I take myself out of it a little bit more and say, I'm okay, because the position is, is true, I believe, or as much as it can be, it's defensible, then it takes me out of it and it takes some of the energy and the vitriol mm. out of, and I can ask better questions. I don't know. What do you That's think? That's really what, helpful. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think, and as I hear you say that, I also imagine that you are probably a lot more of an enjoyable person to be around in that moment as well. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. You know, sometimes I think about like who, so when I go into argumentation mode or defensive mode, what is the, the, the result of me? Like how, one, how do I feel when I leave the conversation? Usually rotten or annoyed, emotional, full of anxiety. And that's probably a little bit how that person experienced me as well. <laughs> I. I I tend to leave those conversations emotionally the way I feel physically when after I go to a party. You ever go to a party? I eat so poorly at parties, right? You walk away and I've had like, you know, eight different kinds of cheese and a beer and like a sausage and a dip. And it's like all of these things that were never meant to be ingested uh, simultaneously. I'm like, oh, I feel so sick. And if I have those engagements, I feel emotionally kind of the same way. I'm like, I just feel like, oh. Just feel disgusting. Like it just, it just does not feel good walking out. Uh, so I'm trying to learn how to converse better, engage better, and eat better at parties. I think this holiday season, that's fair. <laughs> I like that. I also think something that I have found helpful is to make little games out of it. So I like games. Oh. I know you don't like games. <laughs> Me and your wife always make fun of you. you I don't, will not I don't play games, girl. I don't play games. You will not join us for board games. <laughs> I seldom do. It is true. <laughs> but I make a little game out of it. And I find if I can, 
before the conversation, manage to prepare myself a little bit, I will have a small goal for myself. For example, I will say, okay, Brooke, you know, because most of this is with family, right? We know the little cycles we get in. We know the topics that always come up. So I know what's going to come up. I preemptively know that. And I decide in advance, I, one, I want to show up different and I'm going to practice something. So typically what I try, I don't always do this. It makes me sound like an expert, but that I try to enter with a lot of curiosity. And I think, okay, Brooke, you like to read articles from, you know, uh, different positions on topics. You like to once in a while watch the news from a very different political position than yourself. Treat this conversation with this person like that. Learn about this position. So all you're allowed to do is ask questions. And whenever they ask you something, if, but most often people don't ask a lot of questions. Do you realize that? I mean, probably everyone realizes that. We just like to talk. We're <laughs> like everyone. So when I ask questions, mostly I'm just asking questions, one after another. And I find when I enter conversations like that, the result is one, I learn a lot. I just choose to kind of make these people like my little learning guinea pig about whatever, you know, why some people are so passionate about gun rights. I, okay, I, that's not my, my position, but I want to understand, like, help me understand more about this. And there's so many questions I have about it. And so I just kind of pepper them with questions. Now, I don't do it in a mean way or a mocking way. That's really important. People pick up on that. Absolutely. But I, but I practice genuine curiosity, like, teach me, teach me. I don't understand. That's, that's, a, good, uh, that's a good version of a game. So that's a positive version of a game. Because uh, this is interesting. This brings me. This makes me think of a point, and you you uh, focus on evangelism in your role, and I think often we may have learned things inadvertently from the church that have not been helpful in this regard. Okay. Because evangelism, as I was taught, it was also a game, but a trapping game hmm. where you would sort of get people to show that they were you know, like that they didn't know what they were talking about or they were dumb or couldn't, you know, back them into a theological corner. Yeah. And this would somehow strong arm them into becoming a Christian. Um, and that was kind of the model I was presented with. It was a very combative, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, apologetics, right? This is the, the idea of certain views of Christian apologetics, which is a logical defense of the faith. Um, I grew up with that. So it's a different kind of game. So I like the game that you play better, right? Uh, because it's not a, a, uh, the same winning and losing relationship, right? Right. It's like, well, and it also, David, it helps us have real conversations. Yes. So I, I hate fake. Yeah. Like I hate small talk. I'm terrible at it. So I want to talk about real things. You know, I want to be like the Dutch who talk about sex, politics, and religion at the dinner table. So that's actually who I want to be. And my theory is we as Americans, we can do that uh-huh. if we take anxiety and out of it. If we show up in curiosity, I think we can talk about the real stuff, but we need to create different rules for ourselves. I love that. Yeah. And there's... um you're sort of taking the idea of going on the offensive where when you say real, it makes me think where there's genuine curiosity, give and take. 
uh, pe- both points, can, both people can kind of like make a point, not score points, but make a point, and it's like, oh, okay, it's interesting. And yeah, it's just quite different than uh, there's. We often take uh, vulnerability and intimacy go out the window in these things where it's like, okay, uh, if we can't be vulnerable, nobody ever changes, but then nobody shares anything beyond the rhetoric yeah. or on their viewpoint. Because people aren't as ironclad about things. If I'm yeah. honest, even some of the things that I believe strongly, I have some level of doubt or wonder still. Yeah. But those things never feel safe to bring out in those conversations. And those are the ways that genuine conversations, as, as I understand them, uh, that's a feature of genuine conversations where you can acknowledge self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And if not, it's just, you might as well be reading a pamphlet, right? Well, and I think you're making a really good point that is helpful, uh, perhaps for people who are listening right now for this coming holiday, is going personal is almost always a good lean in these sorts of conversations. So even if you notice that you're starting to get in that argument again, whether asking a more personal question or revealing something personal, like your personal struggle with this issue, can very quickly circumvent that normal argument you get into. Yes. Yes. It's it's very interesting. I think we're kind of getting toward uh, one of the things that I find is vulnerability where I have to model it. So as we're thinking about ways that we can kind of try this on in practice, if we do like, I don't like tips and tricks or five, five great things for great conversations, but um, I, I know this because I lead counseling groups all the time and I talk, I tell my counseling students when I teach them, I said, what, what you want to get out of a conversation you have to put in. So if you want people to be vulnerable with you, you usually need to take the lead in that and put some skin in the game. Yeah. So often the thing that I am most vulnerable about is trying to question how things grow out of my values. So I will give an example that we talk about, you know, as as Christians, uh, it's become very politicized, but we talk about the rights of the unborn. You know, we think about uh, the cause of abortion or pro-life or pro-choice or however you want to frame the issue around the unborn. And as someone who has traditionally, over the last 15 years or so, voted left, it can be assumed that I have no value regarding the unborn. Like Christian brothers and sisters of mine or people on the right can say, well, you voted this way. And I still will come to the issue and say, I have a lot of like unsettled questions because I'm, I don't sit comfortably exactly with either party in the U.S. in our two-party system, how they sort of treat the unborn, treat the women you know, who are pregnant with the unborn, you know, all of the things that go into it to make this a robust issue. I will just sort of start a conversation and say, like, look, I have a lot of things that I, I still feel really unsettled about with this, and here are some of them. Like, how do we, and I'm getting to my value that I do have a value for the unborn still, that I'm not callous. And I think that sometimes when you are able to sort of say, hey, I have a value that you have, it can diffuse, right? Or we both have similar values. It doesn't mean our beliefs that, that come out of those values are always the same. But it gives us a little bit of a common plank to stand on, to have the conversation. And I think that's that's been something that I've found really helpful is like, if I'm not dialing it back to a value and some of the areas where I still have questions, like immediately, 
it can take a very dogmatic turn, right? That's a really good point. I think maybe as a last consideration, I think I think it can be helpful. I'm getting stuck in my head. Oh, here we go. I I found it. I'm um sometimes what I do is I think about who are the people I like to talk to most. Huh. And when I think about some of those conversations, I I realize that there are people who are really good listeners. And they may also talk and say really interesting things, but primarily they they really listen well. And um, I, and if I think about who I want to be more like, that's who I want to be more like. And to go back to what you said at the beginning, like in every single conversation, do I always have to be defending something or my thinking about something? My thinking is just my thinking. There's so much thinking in the world, right? There's so many books written about thinking. This, every conversation doesn't have to be that. Um, But how can I give a gift to my cousin, my aunt, my uncle? How can I give the gift of genuine listening? Because not very many people truly get listened to. And so for, for anyone, but I mean, come on, for us as followers of Jesus, <laughs> we of any, if anyone should be able to give that gift. I, I think so. I, I've, I've had to play, you talked about playing a game and counselors don't cringe out there when you hear this, but as I, we are not professionally or ethically supposed to counsel people in our family, you know, people that we know, our friends. However, a lot of the rules of engagement of counseling, I sometimes think when I'm, when I'm sitting with a client of mine, I'll have this sort of like thought, boy, if they could talk to me not in a counseling setting, I would perhaps be taking a much different tack. Like, I may have strong oppositional feelings to something they're stating. Uh, I am a Christian therapist, and sometimes my clientele uh, has certain views of scripture and, uh, you know, God and evil in the world and very black and white prescriptions of the way God works and things that I'm like actively do not like or do not agree with. However, it is not my role in that interaction as a paid counselor to show up that way. So it's very interesting, though. I have been able to gently sort of like get people to question some of their assumptions and presuppositions, which is all I would really hope for anyway, without leaping to defense of my own views, without leaping to attack. And I'm like, that's been sort of like one of the things that's made me think, maybe I should try a different way of doing things. Hmm. Because I'm not trying to be a counselor But at the same point, I realized that the rules of engagement for counseling involve me extending the benefit of the doubt to the person I'm listening to. Well put. Want you know, like just starting from that place, like thinking that they're not trying to be a jerk, you know, a horrible person, and helping them sort of in their metrics, in their worldview, to find peace, to live a better life, to find healing or, you know, integration. And sometimes that integration comes at the at the expense of of like having some of your worldview poked and prodded. But I don't do it with a red hot poker or a shotgun. You know what I mean? Like I don't do it 
it's more of a gentle uh, surgery. It's, you know, I'm just like, you know, I never really have to abandon this. Like, I don't have to all the time take up this sort of oppositional mantle and really mm. go hammer and tongs with somebody. Yeah. Sometimes that feels fun. Yeah. But a lot of people aren't up for it. Yeah. Like, I'm an academic, and a lot of people, I wrote, I wrote a woman the other week. She asked me a bunch of academic questions, and I gave her very academic answers. Mm. And then she seemed really hurt. Mm. And I was like, oh, I thought we were playing the same game, but mm. we weren't. Yeah. And, I, and I had to apologize, because I was like, I, I didn't say anything wrong technically. It just was like, it wasn't right for her. So, anyhow. Brooke, I have, I have been reading this book. And I, it's it makes me it's made me think of Thanksgiving many times, um, and it's written by two atheists, I believe. So uh, don't look for he- heavy theological cues from this. Uh, but I think it's called How to Have Impossible Conversations, um, and the two authors uh, just they give some. They've been in. They get in debates all the time. They you know formally or people attack them, assail them on social media. And basically, they've their career has really grown out of the social media era. Mm. So they're like, basically, let us have some humility and and how have we learned from our mistakes? So I'm going to share a few things yes. from the book to kind of close this up because I think some of them are quite good. So as you're as you're packing your maybe your actual physical bags, this pack this in your relational bags and your emotional bags that you take with you. There's a couple of good things in here, maybe a few nuggets. So I need to turn around and look at my computer. So hang on just a second. Let's see here. So the first one is to ask questions and curiosity, which you've already brought up, a lovely point. And one of the things that they espouse is if somebody is, if you're asking someone a question and you're getting frustrated with them because they keep sort of evading the question or attacking you and not answering the question, they recommend calmly saying, Asking them, the, the person you're talking to, say, hey, would you ask me the question I asked you? Hmm. So, you know, if you're, take your guns right ex- mm-hmm. example, like, you know, if you're asking a, a relative, Brooke, you know, about something like, well, what do you, what do you think is a, a sensible gun right policy? And they're like, well, you know, the liberals and, you know, going off and it's like, they're not answering, they're just kind of making points. You would just say to them. Why don't you ask me that question? Could you ask me what I think a sensible gun right policy is? And make them ask you to put a pause in conversation, and then you provide an answer about what you think it would be to have a, a sensible gun right policy, and then ask them again. Like, now, I'd love to hear from you. Like, what do you think? And just kind of prime and model for them. Hmm. I, think that, I think that's a really interesting way to do it. And again, you don't want to sound condescending in doing right. it, but you want to keep a conversation on track and show that you really want to hear from them on this. So I think that's, I think that's a good one. That's uh, really interesting. Yeah. So there's, there's one. Give, so. give me a couple more. All right. Let's see here. This is a big one. Admit that if you don't, if you don't know something, admit that you don't know. Yeah. I think that there's this temptation. I have, there's someone in my life, I will not name this person's name, but I have, snickered with Kara after we've conversed with this person because when they get out on a ledge uh in terms of their knowledge they will just start like jumping out into the the darkness like claiming certainty for things that they don't know which are 
easily falsified. So I think it adds so much credibility because the whole point of this is to approach with humility. If you don't know something, just say you don't know. This is another good one. I think that um, acknowledging extremists in your position. So if there are people who are sort of fall under your general belief or bent that are maybe just a little too out there or just take things too far, you don't need to own everybody. You can at least acknowledge them and say, I think that person takes it too far too. So if you're on the political spectrum, like, there might be somebody that's way out to the far right or the far left that doesn't you don't need in your in your in your argument to really make it like but you know that person may lump that per, that view in with yours as well it's just it's good to get out in front of it and just be like yeah yeah that's not that's not my it's not a, a an orthodox position right you know you don't have to be to believe whatever I believe, to believe that as well. And I think that's a little that's out there. That's good. Well, and that's also a nice way to help get to what you actually believe and not just get pigeonholed into, um, yeah, what all Democrats believe or whatever example you want to give. Yeah. To actually say, like, wait, it's me talking to you. Right. So how can I talk about that? That's a nice way to get there. And the last thing I will say on this, because there are um, more tips and tricks that we could go through, but one of the things that keeps me in a position of curiosity and not defense or dogmatism, because that's it. Like you want to do things that preserve curiosity, not just because you can start in curiosity and then I can quickly slip out of that. Absolutely. I think my <laughs> one of my tips for staying in, in a curious mode is also to focus on how people know things. Not just what they claim to know, but in a, in a, it's like, oh, that's interesting. How how do you know that? Like, where did you learn that? And I think that also invites humility from that person too, because it invites them to to show where their gaps in knowledge are, and be like, I don't, I didn't, I don't know that. How do you know that? I'm, I'm where did you learn that? I, I'd like to read that too, because often I'll ask people. I'm an academic, so I'll be like, oh, what are your sources? Like, I'd love to read what you're reading. If, you, if you're finding that from a credible source that you can cite, like, most times people can't. So it's a way of sort of not attacking them, but just sort of saying, well, yeah, I'd just like to know, how do you know that? Like, that can go awry with the wrong tone. But I think it's one yeah. of those things where it really takes it down a level because then you're not just piling unproven assumption and rhetoric on top of one another. That's good. So, and maybe I would add to that. How do you know that, or how how do you know that? Is it is that based on an experience you've had? An experiential question can also be a nice one because a lot of our beliefs are based in experiences, whether it's an experience of pain or an experience of uh, you know having a difficult question that that we haven't known an answer for, or our upbringing and. If you have a trusting relationship with that person, which is the goal of what we're trying to build here, right? We want deep relationships. So it may not be this this Thanksgiving or two Thanksgivings from now, but maybe in three Thanksgivings, you'll actually hear some of these real stories as well. That's good. That's good. Yeah. And hopefully, if you've taken anything out of this, uh, we also uh, understand where you're coming from. If you're not fully looking forward to or you have mixed feelings about being with biological family for the upcoming holidays like we we felt some of those things too 
Um, but I've also seen things get better some in some ways and, and some intimacy and closeness uh, that's come by trying to be different in these yeah. things. So I guess I would just say, don't give up hope. You might actually end up looking forward to your holidays more for doing these things. It, it's not such a fight. It can be more of a delight. Absolutely. Say. So um, hopefully y'all have a good Thanksgiving. Wish you, you and your family the best, whether it's your biological or your, your chosen family of friends. Uh, Brooke, any, any holiday uh, tidings for people out there? Have a wonderful time, everyone. Yes, eat, eat the turkey, is it? So we do in the States. <laughs> All, right. All right, we'll see you next time. Life's not a sequence, but-